Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor Tim Barone at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Let's open up to uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, either in uh, the Romans journal or page 948 in the Pew Bible. Just encourage you to see these words as we walk through them today. And we actually read most of this already in the opening verses of our service, but we'll hear it again, uh, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's holy word. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, as we contemplate what it means to be a new creation and to be those who are called into your kingdom, we pray that you would indeed transform our our minds uh, so that we would not be conformed to this world, Uh, but that we would be able to keep step with you as we anticipate uh, your glorious kingdom and and your return. Uh, Bless us now as we uh, come to your word, and we pray that by your spirit uh, it would find place in our hearts. Amen. So I want to encourage you, um, just turn the page over to 12, chapter 1, or I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And this is kind of the thesis statement for this section of... um, the epistle, right? So 12 and following is really talking about what does it look like to be transformed by God's grace and mercy and to live in his kingdom. And so 12.1 kind of gives us this thesis. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to show you that word spiritual is kind of a strange translation I was studying this and came across it. It's more like logical. The word is literally the word that we get uh, logical from. So what he's saying is to give yourself over to God fully in your body is the logical reaction to understanding the gospel. It's the necessary step that comes afterwards. 
Like you cannot understand the gospel, but then not offer yourself as a living sacrifice. It wouldn't make sense. But here, the logical next step outcome is to give yourself over to God because of his mercy. So that's really what this is about. And then furthermore, in in verse two, he says this, do not be conformed to this world. And by that, he doesn't mean the, the creation. He means don't be conformed to the people who do not like God and do not live with God. So oftentimes the word world is used to talk about people who reject God. So do not be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so two notes here. One is there's a contrast, and that today's sermon is going to be a contrast between the way that the world thinks in being conformed Uh, And the way that we as Christians are transformed in the way we think according to the gospel and the will of God. So that's the first thing. There's a contrast. There's a difference. And you'll see that to think and be transformed in the way of the gospel doesn't make any sense to the world. It can't. We're playing kind of a different game, you could say. And then second, that second part of the verse is that the Christian life is often a life of discerning right? It's testing and discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the Bible, if the Bible held every single circumstance, this is exactly what you should do, it would, it would be volumes and volumes and volumes, right? The, the, the amount of circumstances that just in this room we find ourselves in today The different things that we have been placed into and called into, relationships we have to tend to, circumstances we have to walk in, they're so varied and different that the Bible could never contain them. And so the Bible gives us instructions and templates of the ways to think right, but then it's our job as Christians to contemplate in our daily life, how is God calling me? What is his will for this aspect of my life, what is good and pleasing and acceptable. And so a lot of what we do as Christians is to try to discern how is God calling me and leading me forward in this particular circumstance. And so with that, let's look back over to chapter, uh, or verse 9 in chapter 12. And we'll kind of look at, uh, in particular about how we think about good and evil Uh, how we live together as Christians, and then what we do with revenge. And so, beginning in verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. Now, interestingly, this is not uh, a command in Greek. It's actually just a description. It says, it's more like this, God's love does not deceive, or God's love is not hypocritical. So it's a description of God's love. That's what's happening here. And the rest that follows kind of fills that in. God's love is true, we could say, or this is what God's love is really like. The very next statement is this, abhor what is evil. Now, I want you to notice that the first statement on love for us, the first way to describe God's love is hate. Isn't that interesting? Uh, That is really not the way that our world thinks, because love for our world is not that defined, and it doesn't have hard edges. Love in our world often takes the form of permissiveness, 
or practicality, right? If it makes you happy, it can't be all that bad, right? So love for our world is not as strictly defined, but in God's mind it is. And I'll give you a few examples. Let's say uh, you spent hours and hours and hours on your lawn. Anyone? And, you, and you're digging around in your lawn. You're like, I got to get the greenest lawn, you know. Got to do that. And you're digging around in your lawn, you find army worms. Do you love the army worms? No. You hate the army worms. You think, I'm going to chop up every one of these little guys right now, you know. But your love for the lawn and the, probably the work that you put into the lawn more than anything says, now I hate uh, that thing that could destroy it. And so true love hates whatever threatens the object of its love. True love hates whatever threatens the object of its love. Similarly, if you bought a beautiful uh, turn-of-the-century home, all kinds of beautiful woodwork, artisanship, one of a kind, we don't build houses like this anymore, and you're like, I'm going to restore this whole thing, it's going to be beautiful, and then you find termites in the basement, do you love those termites? Or do you think, I hate, I abhor, I loathe, I detest these termites, right? Because it threatens that thing that you love. Uh, you know, more seriously, if, if one of our children, right, we love our children, if there's a disease found in one of our children, we hate that. We want to destroy that disease so that the child may live. How serious it is when God says that he hates something, right, that he detests sin and evil, that there's something that God is against. Why is he against something? Well, it's fueled by his enormous love for us, right, and for the creation. God saw this evil infiltrating into his creation, right, and he hates that evil. And all of his power is bent on getting rid of that evil and saving the creation, saving the good, saving uh, his people, And so this is what we see in Jesus, of course. We see God figured out a way to save his creation without destroying it, right? Like a surgeon with a scalpel, he went in with an intervention and saved all creation through the person of Jesus Christ, laying on him their sins so that we could be free, And he didn't have to do it that way. If you think about it, once all creation fell into sin, he could have just said, game over. I'll start over. I'll find a new Adam, a new Eve. I'll just do it all again. No big problem. But if you think about it, if he did that, you would not exist. If God had just wiped out Adam and Eve, just start again, we all came from that same source. And so none of us would exist. Instead, he decided to enter carefully into his creation in the person of Jesus, uh, using Jesus to absorb the evil that we had created, righteously bringing him from death to life so that everyone who believes in him could be saved. Um, God hates evil, and he has intervened on your behalf to erase that evil and to bring us into his kingdom once again. And so, as Christians, we have this thought process too. We don't think we're wise enough to know what's good and evil on our own. Rather, we pay attention to what God says is evil. 
We pay attention to what God says is good. And we train our hearts to despise what he says is evil and to cling to what he says is good. Uh, This is not the way of the world, as I mentioned. The, The way the world thinks about good and evil is pragmatism. That basically means, is it working for you? Is it moving you ahead in your goals in life? And so a lot of the things that Christians will focus on are strange to the world, right? I'll give you one example, and that example is prayer. The world looks at prayer, and in a pragmatist kind of way, it says, I don't know if that's going to work for me. Or I tried prayer, it didn't get me what I wanted, right? Or, you know what, I'm just way too busy to pray, right? And so it's, if it's working for you, great, I'm, I'm happy for you, you keep at it. For me, it just never really worked, And prayer in that mindset is making God into a character in my story. Do you see that? Where you say, yeah, I'm I'm living this life and maybe I'll incorporate God into my journey to get where I want to. But if it's not working out for me, I can just lose that because maybe there's more effective ways to move forward. Whereas Christians think this about prayer. I was listening uh, to a, an audiobook. My wife happened to be listening to it, and it's about prayer by Tim Keller. And I was listening to this, and I was a little bit shocked when he said that to not pray is one of the greatest evils. To not pray is one of the greatest evils. And I'm like, wow, that's a pretty strong statement. And he continued to say, to fail to pray then is not merely to break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against his glory. And so Christians look at this and say, no, there's a clear line here. To not pray is to do great evil. It's not just take it or leave it. It's to do evil. And to pray is to do something good, to cling to what is good and right. Well, what is, why is that? To not pray is kind of like this. To to say to uh, someone who adopted you, let's say a family adopted you into their family, And as you're growing in their family and eating their food and sleeping in their bed, you refuse to speak to those people. And the only times you do speak to them is when you're mad and yelling at them. Not only is that just not practical, but you can see it's a great evil. What a great evil to turn towards such a great and compassionate love with such disdain. And so it is for prayer. Why do we pray? Why do we do what is good? It's because our God who created the universe and established a loving relationship with us and sent his son and redeemed us and filled us with his spirit is worthy of prayer, is worthy to talk to. It's worthy of your time and your attention and to hear from him because it's right and it's good. If you think about what will happen in the new creation, Think about Jesus returns to this world. As we just confessed, he judges the living and the dead. He casts out all evil from creation. And there's a new creation. And everyone there, is anyone there going to forget to pray? Is anyone there going to be like, eh, I'm too busy? No, the truth will be revealed, right? That God who sustains all things is in your presence and worthy. It's right. It's good 
to continually praise him, continually pray to him, because he is good and the author of all good. And so for Christians to not pray is a great evil. It's not just something I didn't get to. It's to not recognize who we are before the true and living God and to demote him to a little character in our story. But we want to be transformed in our minds. That's not the truth. The truth is God is worthy of our prayers and he is in all things. And so we should constantly pray to him as a great thing that we do and a privilege. Let's move on. Uh, This next section is really about how we live together uh, in the church. Uh, He says, love one another with brotherly affection. It's interesting. He uses the word love three times in two sentences here. And so love is really the dominant theme. But love one another with brotherly affection, it's kind of like this warm family love, right? I love my church because they're my people. That's the way that we're called to think about the church. It's not like, you know, the the worldly way of thinking is kind of like this. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Not my problem. I don't need more problems in my life, right? I don't need to know about the problems of the people in my church, the elderly in my church, the young kids in my church. I don't need any of that because the church is just for me. It's my personal journey before God, right? So I don't, if I need the church, I'll go get the church. If I don't, whatever. But that's not what the scriptures call us to. It says, love one another with brotherly affection as in care for each other. The transformed mind says, these are my forever people. These people I'm going to get to know for eternity. These people have been gathered together with me through the body and blood of Christ And I owe them my devotion and my love for the sake of Jesus. And so he goes on. He says, outdo one another in showing honor, right? The earthly mind seeks honor, seeks to honor itself. Uh, The transformed mind seeks to outdo others in honor. And then this next sentence, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. If you're an underlining person, you can underline slothful. You can even draw a picture of a sloth if you want to. Oh, I got to bring sloths into this. Uh, But there's this worldly way of thinking. Uh, Recently, sociologists, counselors, psychologists have kind of labeled something. It's not new, but acedia is what it's called. And it's kind of like this this plague of listlessness, purposelessness that they're seeing in people. That people have just kind of lost the plot of this life, and so they're just content to just be sedated by screens, right? And just to be kind of uh, drifting along without any real drive to do anything in this life. And the world's like, well, you know, you do you. That's fine. If that's when it, it's your life, right? You can spend it however you want. Uh, the transformed mind says, no. You have been called by God's word to do tasks in this life. You've been called to care for creation, to love your neighbors where you find them, to invest in your community and to raise people up. You can't be selfish with your time. You have so many good things that you could do in the na- be doing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you are not your own, right? You're a living sacrifice given by God for the care of creation, just like Adam and Eve in the beginning we're called to do this great task. 
God never said, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Instead, he redeemed us in Christ, and now he says, and go back into creation, serving and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so our transformed mind says, no, I have good things to do. Every moment is a possibility that I can raise others up and be of service as I live in, in hope of the life that is to come. Uh, so let's move on. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The worldly way of thinking, if you think this life is, I get 80 years and that's it, right? If, that, if you really let that idea get into you, then every moment becomes very important because it's fleeting or it's purposeless, right? Uh, but for a lot of people, every moment is very uh, important. And so the worst thing that can happen to someone who does not have the hope in Christ of the resurrection is suffering, right? Because if we suffer, we're looking at our circumstances and we're saying, this is it. This is the worst possible thing that could happen to me because I'm in this great suffering. And that's so the world's way of thinking is thinking suffering's bad. I'm going to avoid it as much as I can and just find pleasure as much as I can 24-7, uh, and to suffer in the world's mind is to be cursed, but not according to the transformed mind. According to the mind that we have in Christ, suffering is not the worst thing in this world. Faithlessness is. Uh, suffering has been overcome, and we have a great hope that is coming for us in Christ's return. We have to look forward to the resurrection of the body. So if, that, if your body is suffering today, we don't have to dwell on that as if that's it. We say, no, that, but there's a promise that is coming. There is something that is coming that is greater. And so I can suffer with endurance and patience and prayer where the world says, you guys are weird. You guys are crazy. Because for them, suffering is the absolute worst. But we rejoice in the hope that we have and that allows us to suffer with hope. Next, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with others. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now, I think this is a crucial thing for us to understand in the church because how does the world work? What's the worldly conformed cookie cutter, everyone's going to end up defaulting in this direction way of thinking. Who do you talk to when you come into a room? The most important person, the most beautiful person, the most popular person. When you come into school, first couple days of school, and it's time to sit down at the lunch table, where do you go? There's like a mad rush for that pecking order, right? To find the most important place. And it happens not just with kids, but with adults too. And this can work its way into the church too, where who am I going to the church to talk to? The person who entertains me, right? Or the person I like talking to. I don't really want to associate with lowly people who don't have that many ideas or maybe aren't popular or aren't beautiful or aren't inspiring. Thanks be to God, he doesn't treat us this way in Christ Jesus, right? If God was like, I just want to hang out with the popular people, 
I just want to hang out with the important people. Would Jesus have ever come to our table? No, but Jesus went and associated with the lowly, like you and me. He came and ate at the table of sinners and talked to people who the world would say was losers. Jesus was like, they're my people. And we, with a transformed mind, see people in the same way. People are not stepladders for us to gain notoriety in this life, popularity. Rather, people are those who have been loved by God, that God exchanged the blood of Jesus for. They're valuable, even if they're not functioning in the way that maybe would suit us. And so we seek to value them. We seek to spend time with them. We seek to be interested in their lives and their struggles and in what the Lord is doing in their lives too. The next thing he talks about is revenge. So he's really talked to us about the way we think about good and evil. And then the way we talk to each other, the way we interact with each other, especially within the church. And now he's going to talk about what do we do with revenge? What do we do when there's great harm and damage? And so listen to these words. He says, first of all, this is important. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't think you have the absolute judgment. But repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Right? There's that discernment piece. If possible, and it's not always possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is kind of, notice he spends a lot of time talking about this aspect of Christian life. Now, why is, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe uh, that there is life after death, that there is something coming that is greater and glorious, then this makes absolutely no sense. Because like we said, if, if you are captive under the fear of death, like he, uh, 1 Timothy describes people who don't know the Lord, they're captive under the fear of death, then if someone damages you and hurts you, there's nothing left to do but get revenge, to get even. Because there's a limited supply of life and goodness that has come your way. And so if someone takes that from you, the only logical thing in that circumstance is to take it back or to try to get repaid in some way. But the Christian mind says this, right? It says what Romans 8 says, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That God has done what the law could not do, right? He's taken your sin upon himself and given you a life that's eternal, and he's baptized you into, into a kingdom that has no end. And so the life that God has given to you is not limited. And so you are actually never going to lose out fully. And people can never actually kill and damage you in the same way that they could if you did not have that blessing. And so when we think this way, we think nothing is going to separate me from God's love. And so if I have been harmed, if I have been taken advantage of, if I have been sinned against, I don't need to seek my vengeance. 
I'm good. I'm taken care of. The Lord who takes care of the sparrows also takes care of me. Beyond that, we know that God is coming with perfect judgment. He's coming to judge the world. Jesus is coming back to judge the world. And you know what? He's not going to let any evil get away from him. He's going to have perfect justice for this world, something that humans could never do. And when he comes, justice will truly be done. And so, no one will get away with it anyway, but they will be called to account for the evil that they have done. And so with that in mind, instead of being filled with vengeance towards those who have harmed us, we can actually be filled with, um, be filled with empathy toward them and also some concern. You've harmed me greatly, but God will avenge me. You need to be saved. And so that changes the way we look at them and we can actually turn like Jesus did with forgiveness towards those who have harmed us. This is no easy thing to do, and it's only by the Spirit that we can do it. Uh, A few years ago, there was a woman, uh, Amber Geiger. She's a police officer. You may have heard this story. Got a lot of national news, but she was a police officer coming home from uh, work, and she opened what she thought was her apartment door and saw a big black man in her kitchen. And being afraid, she, and instinctually, she pulled out her, her weapon and killed him. And this got a lot of press. There was cries for vengeance, right? Justice needed to be done. And especially with the, the racial tensions that were happening at the time, uh, it was not good. People were very upset about this. Uh, actually, the defense for her tried to claim that it was self-defense that she had shot this man. She was afraid for her life. But it turns out the man was eating ice cream in his own kitchen with his own spoon. So not a lot to be afraid of there. Botham Jean was his name, uh, and he died that day. Uh, years later, when the, when the um, court went through, eventually Amber was sentenced to 10 years in jail. And a lot of people thought that this was far too little. It was in Texas, and some people were like, we got the death penalty, we should use it. Uh, but she was sentenced to 10 years uh, in jail for this unlawful uh, death. But one of the most beautiful things happened in that court. At the end of it, family got to, to speak to her and testify in court and say some last words. And Botham's younger brother, Brant Jean, spoke. And he talked directly to Amber. And this is what he said. He said, I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not going to hope you rot and die. I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want for you. Give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing Botham would want for you. Brant then asked the judge if he could go give her a hug. And the judge, kind of breaking precedent, said, yes, go and do that. And the two embraced. Amber and Brant embraced together and wept together. Now, the world cannot produce an ethic or a way of life 
that would make sense of that. The only way that makes sense is if this young man, Brant, was filled with the Holy Spirit and truly believed that anything that had been taken from him by violence in this life, if it was in Christ, was not really lost after all. That God would restore all things and make all things right. And that allowed him to turn amazingly, not with vicious anger towards Amber, but with compassion. And this woman, as she spends her 10 years in jail, what do you think she's going to be thinking about? It's kind of like there were some hot coals placed on her head, right? If she was not already a Christian, I don't think she could get this out of her head, right? That this man forgave me after I killed his brother. This is the kind of thing that Christ calls us to live out with transformed minds, that we would understand the opportunities for the gospel even in the midst of suffering, and that we would be eager to do the will of God in every situation that he calls us to, calling evil, evil, and good, good, loving the church, and never trying to overcome evil with evil, but rather overcoming evil with God. And may the Holy Spirit work this out in every one of your situations as well. In the name of Jesus, amen.